Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley, and what a special treat we've got for you today. What we thought we'd do on the podcast is uh, rerun all of Dominic Cummings' evidence to you. No, I'm only joking. Nobody wants that. Uh, we will discuss it, though, with our communist panel in just a moment. Our big thing today, though, nothing to do with Dominic Cummings, which he will hate. Uh, we thought we'd take a look at the Green Party. They're quietly, they're doing quite well. What's behind all of that? It turns out people in the Labour Party are quite worried about that too. So that's coming up in our big thing. But first, let's kick off. Matt Hancock uh, giving his first response to everything that Dominic Cummings had to say about him. This is what Matt Hancock had to say. Mr Speaker, what we've done to handle this coronavirus pandemic has been unprecedented in modern times. Throughout, we have been straight with people and straight with this House about the challenges that we as a nation face together. The nation, in my view, has risen to these challenges. Of course, there were unprecedented difficulties that come with preparation for an unprecedented event. But, Mr Speaker, this pandemic isn't over yet. Our vaccination programme has reached 73% of the adult population, but that means that more than a quarter still haven't been jabbed. 43% of adults have had both jabs, but that means that more than half are yet to get the fullest possible protection that two jabs gives. Yesterday, we saw 3,180 new cases of coronavirus, the highest since the 12th of April. But thanks to the power of vaccination, in which I have always believed, the link from cases to hospitalisations and to deaths is being severed. Around 90% of those in hospital in hotspot areas have not yet had both jabs. So the continued delivery of the vaccination effort and the ongoing work to control the virus through testing, tracing and isolation, these are vital. Yesterday, we saw the opening of vaccinations to all those aged 30 and above. 
and I'm delighted to tell the House that the vaccination programme is on track to meet its goal to offer a jab to all adults by the end of July. And, Mr Speaker, it has met every goal that we have set. Because setting and meeting ambitious targets is how you get stuff done in government. We have many challenges as a nation still to come. I know, and one of the things I've learned, is the best way through is to work together with a can-do spirit of positive collaboration. The team, the team who have worked so hard together to get us this far deserve our highest praise. I am proud of everyone in my department, all those working in healthcare and in public health, the armed forces who fought on this home front, the volunteers who stood in cold car parks with a smile, colleagues across the House who have done their bit, and most of all, the British people. And whether it's the science or the NHS or people queuing for vaccines in their droves, Britain is rising to this challenge. We have come together as one nation and we will overcome. Shadow Secretary of State, Jonathan Ashworth. So this is John Ashworth, uh, Labour's Shadow Secretary. will have noticed that the Secretary of State, in his opening remarks, did not respond to any of the specific allegations from yesterday. Allegations which are grave and serious. That the Prime Minister is unfit for office, that his inaction meant tens of thousands needlessly died. Allegations from Dominic Cummings that he specifically is accused of misleading colleagues. An allegation from Mr Cummings, uh, uh, Mr Speaker on our preparedness and lack of protection for people in care homes. Now, these allegations from Cummings are either true, and if so, the Secretary of State potentially stands in breach of the Ministerial Code and the Nolan Principles, or they are false, and the Prime Minister brought a fantasist and a liar into the heart of Downing Street. Which is it? Families who have lost loved ones deserve full answers from him today. Is he ashamed that he promised a protective shield around care homes and over 30,000 care home residents have died? Why were 25,000 elderly people discharged from hospitals into care homes without any test? Did he tell Downing Street in March that people discharged from hospital had been tested, even though it wasn't until 15th of April that there was a requirement for testing to take place? In public, he has often claimed that little was known of asymptomatic transmission at the time, so testing wasn't necessary. But SAGE in January flagged evidence of asymptomatic transmission. A study in The Lancet in February flagged it. On March the 5th, the CMO said there may well be a lot of people who are infected and have no symptoms. So why didn't he insist on a precautionary approach and test all going into care homes? On 6th of May at the dispatch box, he claimed that it is safer for them to go into a care home. 12,000 people had died in these early months. How could he justify that comment? In April, he told the House that what is important is that infection control procedures are in place in that care home. But care homes, like the NHS, struggled with the most desperate of PPE shortages. And he was telling us in March from this dispatch box that supplies were extensive, but apparently in private in Downing Street was blaming Simon Stevens for lack of PPE. But the reality is him and his department was responsible for PPE and the NAO report said the supplies were inadequate. 850 healthcare workers died. How many could have been saved had they had PPE? 
Families loved lost ones and have been let down by this government, this Prime Minister and this Health Secretary. But the truth matters. These families and the country deserve clear answers from the Health Secretary and the Prime Minister today. Secretary of State. Go back to Matt Hancock, uh, well, the uh, thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Speaker. The, these allegations that were put yesterday and repeated by the right honourable gentleman are serious allegations, and I welcome the opportunity to come to the House to put formally on the record that these unsubstantiated allegations around honesty are not true, and that I've been straight with people in public and in private throughout. Every day, since I began working on the response to this pandemic last January, I got up each morning and asked, what must I do to protect life? That is the job of a health secretary in a pandemic. We've taken an approach of openness, transparency, and explanation of both what we know and of what we don't know. I was looking at it this morning. Since last January, I've attended this House, Mr Speaker, over 60 times, with the Prime Minister, we have together hosted 84 press conferences. I've answered 2,667 contributions to this House and answered questions from colleagues, the media and the public. And we'll keep on with this spirit of openness and transparency throughout. As well as coming to the House today, I'll be answering questions and hosting another press conference later. Now, sometimes what we've had to say hasn't been easy. We've had to level with people when it's been tough, when things have been going in the wrong direction. And also, we have learned throughout. We've applied that learning both to tackling this pandemic and making sure that we're as well prepared in the future as possible. But beyond all this, what matters remains the same getting vaccinated, getting tested, delivering for our country, overcoming this disease and saving lives. And that is what matters to the British people. Yeah. Let's go to the church. Matt Hancock there in the House of Commons responding to an urgent question from the Labour Party on the specific issue of Dominic Cummings. He said uh, these unsubstantiated uh, allegations around honesty are not true. He said before setting out in some detail uh, every press conference, uh, uh, Commons appearance, 2,667 questions he's answered in the House of Commons. He said, uh, John Ashworth um, uh, tackling uh, Matt Hancock and a whole load of things, and Dominic Cummings saying the Prime Minister was unfit for office, uh, and, it, and these allegations that Matt Hancock had misled colleagues. Uh, just before uh, they got up, uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Commons Speaker, made clear that MPs should not accuse other MPs in the Commons of lying. He said it, it depended on the context. It may be in order for them to quote the views of others. Basically, you can say that Dominic Cummings accused Matt Hancock of lying, but they can't say that Matt Hancock is a liar. And now we can go to our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be night at the Marriott. It's India Night and James Marriott. So, uh, India, first of all, what did you make of that? What did you make of Dominic Cummings? Are you Team Cummings or Team Hancock this morning? Well, I was, I used to be very much not Team Cummings, having only really seen him in action at that strange um, Rose Garden press conference a year ago. Um, so I watched the proceedings yesterday thinking that I probably, that it was probably a sort of, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't think that I would uh, find much of substance in it. In fact, I was absolutely gripped for 
I watched most of it. I came in about an hour late um, and couldn't stop watching. And I believed him. You know, I believed him. I, I, did, I don't anymore think that he's this sort of, well, actually, it doesn't matter whether he's a kind of weird, obsessive nerd or not. I mean, I believe in the <laughs> substance of what he was saying. He seemed really, really across the detail. And I think Hancock's response just now was feeble, actually. I also think it's really dangerous to use words like unsubstantiated when I suspect Cummings can substantiate quite a lot of what he's saying and probably will. Yeah, I suppose. Do you think there's a risk, India, that because it sort of rings true... And uh, it, it, and you know, if you if you basically if we already thought uh, it hadn't gone terribly well the last year, suddenly the the very people who thought that Dominic Cummings was a disingenuous, uh, unreliable egomaniac, are now saying he's a paragon of virtue and truth uh, because they agree with what they want to agree with what he's saying. No, because I don't think people do think he's a paragon of virtue and truth. I mean, I thought the stuff about basically wanting to be the second Mrs. Sunak, as far as I could see. I mean, the absolute, <laughs> the absolute, you know, the, the way that he absolutely wouldn't say that eat out to help out was conceivably a bad idea. Uh, and the way that he kept Michael Gove completely out of things. I mean, obviously, he has an agenda and obviously his side of things is quite a kind of heavily tilted side of things. But I think the substance of what he was saying will have much more cut through than I, perhaps naively or stupidly, had anticipated. And I think... You know, there's a lot for people to get their teeth into, let alone for MPs to get their teeth into. Do you think it will change anyone's mind, James? Or do you think it will just reinforce what people already thought? I think it might change... I'm with India. I think it might change more minds than I would have initially anticipated. I mean, I think the cut-through is just the sheer kind of drama of it. It's proper kind of soap opera stuff. Um, I mean, the absolutely unforgettable scene in Downing Street of Carrie Simmons... Um, allegedly going mad about that time story about mm. her dog weeing on the carpet at the same time they're supposed to be dealing with the pandemic in its kind of most urgent phase. I mean, I think just the fact that it so much sounds like EastEnders is just makes it kind of completely with unignorable. With Trump on the phone, Trump trying on the to phone do a rocket attack in Iraq. Iraq. Um, it's just, I think if it had been, if Dominic Cummings was anyone else and he was a sort of grey, tedious figure who'd sat with a sort of, you know, with the sheets of paper in front of him and kind of read out all his kind of pre-prepared statements and played it safe, it would be different. But I just, it's just, yeah, it's just amazing. And I think, listening to Matt Hancock's statement, that sort of, the act I always find sort of um, quite unconvincing for Matt Hancock, the kind of very statesmanly but also in touch with his feelings thing that he always seems to try to do. Uh, I don't, I just find blander than bland and I just sort of think that will surely be sort of steamrolled by that kind of amazing... Uh, manic Cummings energy. It was interesting because uh, there was a little bit. I'm also we heard him at the press co- at the um, the famous Rose Garden press conference last year. Uh, but it, it's a little bit like a sort of royal, isn't it? Someone who's written about and spoken about mm-hmm. far more than we ever hear from them. And stuff. it turns out he's an incredibly get engaging, charming, yeah. you know, eloquent, funny, quite bitchy uh, uh, person to listen to. Um, uh, which which actually made it. You're right, um, India. Just made it much more gripping than if he'd been a slightly duller person. Yes, I think that was the big surprise that, you know, I suppose I sat down to watch it thinking this is this is a kind of exquisite version of the utmost kind of Westminster nerdery. And actually, it wasn't <laughs> that at all. And he I mean, I'm sure he is the ultimate nerdy wonk. But 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 as you say, it was humanly so interesting and he was humanly so credible and 
his, you know, he was really, really, I mean, I, I keep coming back maybe because I'm not very good at remembering what I did last week even, but, you know, he was so across the detail in a way that really didn't leave very much space to go, oh, no, actually, it didn't, that, it didn't happen like that, it happened like this. I think, yeah, I also kept wishing that Jeremy Hunt was health secretary while watching that yesterday. <laughs> Although, you know, Jeremy Hunt's got his own questions about because if, if Dominic Cummings' uh, central complaint is there was no plan, uh, mm. Jer Jeremy Hunt was the longest serving ever health secretary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, so there was definitely no plan on his watch. So uh, no, that's you know, very true. That's uh, very there were true. questions there um, uh, as well. And, and James, the part of the... I mean, lots of it is clearly very interesting. Uh, there's clearly an agenda to all of it. And when there are things like when he says, I told Boris Johnson in the summer I was going to resign and I was going to resign because there was chaos. And actually, the crunch point was uh, when he wouldn't listen to me in September. But actually, the crunch point was when Carrie was sticking her all in in October. There's a whole load of stuff which is a little bit. It doesn't all quite add up. If you actually take the sum total of everything. Yeah. And I mean, what, what I mean, what this seems to make clear is that, um, Dominic Cummings seems to just love being in the centre of things and all these opportunities when he could have resigned. You imagine he was just hanging on in there because um, he found it thrilling and amazing to be at the middle of, in the middle of all these things. I mean, the press conference, uh, sorry, the thing yesterday um, seems to reinforce that idea. He was clearly in his element in the middle of a conference room, um, you know, getting to give his getting to give his side of the story. And although he says, you know, um, the kind of how mad that chaos on Downing Street was with that, you know, with the dog weeing everywhere and Trump on the phone. You can imagine that he was just having the time of his life there. Um, and he loved that. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is a bit of that. There is a bit of that. And just that, um, uh, I think Dan, Danny Finkelstein wrote about it this week. Just the idea that basically Dominic Cummings, a bit like sort of staying in a relationship, convinced himself he could change Boris Johnson. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he could get a grip, and he was going to be basically running the country. And he was astonished to find that Boris Johnson was Boris Johnson, and, and then the sort of trainable dog, like 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 what's <laughs> like Dylan. Dylan. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about that story. We don't talk about the time story about the untrainable dog and the fact that he brought the entire. But that was one of the most extraordinary moments. When you discover it was March the twelfth last year, when um, Carrie was going mad about the time story about the dog. Donald Trump wanted to start bombing the Middle East, and in the middle of it all, Dom was apparently saying. Could we do something about this coronavirus? It's absolutely extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. But that's probably, that's enough of talk about Dominic Cummings. He'll hate all of this attention, I'm sure. Um, now, I was, <laughs> normally we would talk about your columns separately, but there's, as ever, there's a really nice sort of theme. So, the, um, James, you've written today about why boomers are awful, essentially, uh, and uh, India, you wrote at the weekend about why um, people should stop putting off uh, having children to have their children young. So, first of all, James. As the uh, token young person uh, on the panel, make the case uh, for uh, why why the uh, the boomers are shaping society. So yeah, basically, um, I was my, my kind of column started talking about the nineteen sixties and the youth revolution in the nineteen sixties. Um, that was basically, I think, driven by the fact that young people in the 60s were unprecedentedly wealthy compared to any point in previous history. And there were just demographically more of them thanks to the baby boom. And this is where we had this sort of huge influential social and cultural moment. And then fast forward... 60 years to now, and that situation is basically reversed. Old people are wealthier than they ever have been in history. Um, young people are much poorer than they've been in, well, in recent history. And um, demographically, um, there are now more boomers than millennials. And old people, thanks to um, better medicine and falling birth rates, make up a much greater portion of society. So the argument of my column was that we sort of live in this world that is to basically an unprecedented degree shaped by the old who have more money and there are more of them than ever before so they shape our politics uh they shape our culture um and um 
yeah, I think maybe this is where sort of, and then the other aspects maybe kind of ties into India at this point. Um, so, India, do you want do you want to make the case for why James is wrong on this, or is it, or is it, or maybe? But I did wonder whether actually maybe, and I think Libby Purvis might have pointed this out to you on Twitter, James, that maybe the young people always think this that the generations ahead of them are, you know. Uh, in control of everything, and it's not it's not fair. Is that is that what always happens, India? No, I don't think so. I think in this um, instance, James is probably right. Um, but but yes, where this all overlaps with my column of last Sunday's, I was saying people should people should young people should repopulate, <laughs> repopulate so that there's more and more and more young people when the boomers finally shuffle <laughs> off their mortal coil. Um, and I was wondering why. It has become, you know, the, the, the average age of um, somebody having a first child has dropped massively since they've been dropping since the mid 1970s. It's now 30.7, I think, 30.1 maybe. Um, uh, and I think people should just get on with it, get on with it, make more young people and then everything will be fine. That's what we need. And then because then, and then, you're completely right, the boomers are going to need looking after at some point. Yeah, that's a grim thought. <laughs> <laughs> we need to, and also, but also, I mean, um, you know, society as a whole, particularly because you know, I was reading today about you know the, the um, hospitality industry. You know, we, we've suddenly discovered what happens when all the Europeans go home and they don't come back. Mm-hmm. We do need people to do those jobs. I mean, I'm not suggesting you should have a baby now and get them in working in a restaurant immediately. <laughs> no, but um, you could <laughs> <laughs> get them all trained up. Um, and Jamie, what what's it, is, what's your sort of um, call to arms to uh, younger generations about what they should do to, to throw off the shackles of the boomers? Yeah, well, I mean, I just think this kind of story about aging populations and shrinking birth rates is completely fascinating. Um, you know, Japan's a bit ahead of us on this, and Japan has this kind of enormous fertility crisis. Um, I mean, I think the, ba- the probably the basic fact is that the housing crisis and the fact that young people, you know, can't afford a place to live is just going to be a huge factor in whether or not you have a baby. I mean... I, I, I live in a room in a shared mm-hmm. flat and if I if I had a baby I just didn't know what I'd do with it. I'd probably have to put it in like a you know, one of my in a in a drawer somewhere and that's no But excuse. you could um, put it in a drawer. You could put it in a drawer. I mean I think <laughs> no, genuinely you could put it in a drawer. My first baby lived in the kitchen in a sort of large crate for the first four months of his life. It wasn't quite a crate, but you know, he lived sort of in a corner of the kitchen and it was fine. I think there's a difficulty with all of this and I think this is generational and it does come around again and again with looking at the genera- your parents' generation and thinking, God, you had it so easy, you had it so easy. And often that's true, but you can't let that be the paralysing factor that stops you from reinventing ways to live or ways to have children or ways to raise children, raise babies and boxes. You know, you, you standing, I'm not saying this is what James is doing, but I think it's quite a lot, quite quite it's what quite a lot of younger people do they look at their parents generation think well i'll never have that house and that garden and those things throw their hands up in despair and then sit back down again feeling very hard done by and then nothing happens (laughs) and that's no good but also there's something about the sort of thinking that there's there will be a perfect moment you know every year we like to control our lives we plan out our holidays and our social lives and all that sort of and there's a there'll be a one day i will reach the perfect moment to have a baby and actually there isn't a perfect moment and i I know from perfect personal experience that event you know you, you discover you've got a baby on the way and you make it work and you've exactly. got a house and you know whatever it might be and and, and waiting for that because perfect, perfect moments don't actually come around they don't it's true there's no such thing really i mean you know you can you can there are moments that are better than other moments and people that are better than other people but i think generally you should sort of crack on 
Indian Night and James Mowick there. You can read uh, James in the Times on a Thursday, India in the Sunday Times on a Sunday. Uh, you just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's the rise of the Green Party. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. Green onions, it's green onions. Just say, it's just say, green onions. Song, it's called Green Onion. It's also very good. Uh, right, yeah, we're going to talk about the Green Party now, and the uh, the, the progress they seem to be quietly uh, making. Uh, they might only have one seat at Westminster, but they seem to be on the rise again. They gained eighty council seats at the local elections earlier this month, and there were signs they're having quite a resurgence, particularly in the south, with the party becoming the joint largest uh, party on Bristol Council. Uh, and uh, Green Party co-leader Sean Berry coming third in the London mayoral race. The polling guru, uh, John Curtis, said that these local elections appear to confirm that Greens are not able to win a non-trivial proportion of the vote. So what impact will that have on politics? What next to the party, which has so far not been able to build a bigger presence in Westminster? In a few minutes, we'll speak to their co-leader, Jonathan Bartley, about whether they can become a force to be reckoned with on the national stage. But first of all, let's root around in the polling and the politics. We're joined by Chris Chris Curtis, pollster from the polling firm Opinion. Hi, Chris. Good morning, Matt. And here to talk the politics is Charlotte Ivers, Times Radio's political correspondent. Hi, Charlotte. Good morning. So, uh, Chris, talk us through the numbers, first of all. Paint us a, a, uh, a, a bar chart in the mind uh, of uh, what has been happening to levels of support for the Greens. Well, it's gone up. Um, they won less than 3% of the vote at the last election um, and you'll always find no opinion polls that show them that low now our most recent opinion poll showed them with over double that vote share on 7% I don't know what we're going to count as trivial or non-trivial per <laughs> John Curtis's um, words but I think that you know that's a significant increase and increasingly you know they do sometimes go back in general election campaigns but increasingly the sort of default position for the greens does seem to be a a lot higher than it used to be and i think the other interesting point is not just how well the greens are doing but how well the greens are doing relative to the lib dems so obviously 
the Lib Dems are doing incredibly badly. And what that means is we could end up in a situation where, in England at least, the Green Party is the de facto third party now. That means that, you know, you're going to have to start inviting the Greens onto your show more probably. They're going to start to have to get more coverage and things like that as we eventually do go into a general election campaign. Uh, and that, that could be that could be incredibly beneficial for them. So I think it's it's yes, they're they're doing well, but also they're doing well in a situation where the Lib Dems really aren't, which 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 could make that uh, that higher vote share um, sort of more sturdy. And uh, have the Greens sort of replaced the Lib Dems in that sort of space of nice protest party? None of the above. They seem nice. It's not ultimately going to change the 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 who's the prime minister, but um, you know the Lib Dems still haven't really shaken off the impact of the of the coalition a decade ago. There is a big difference between Lib Dem support and Green Party support, and that's that Lib Dem support, yes, it was a protest vote, but it sort of came from everywhere on the political spectrum. Back when they were doing well in 2010, 2015, and you know, winning quite a few seats, there'd be you know, lots of Leave voters, lots of Remain voters, lots of people from the Conservatives, lots of people from the Labour Party that all sort of gathered in a protest vote for the Liberal Democrats. That's not true for the Green Party. Their votes are mostly coming from the sort of Liberal, Remainy left, almost entirely coming from people who have supported at least Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Um, and obviously that makes a different sort of calculation for the two main parties. The Liberal Democrats, when they were the third party, would, you know, generally damage both sides equally and, if anything, take more seats off the Conservatives. The Greens, I think if they are successful are going to be much more damaging to the Labour Party. Yeah, Charlotte Ivers, and that's that's where the, there is some concern, isn't there, both uh, in the Labour Party and in the Tory Party? That is definitely true. There's a lot of concern among Conservative MPs in the south of England. So it's interesting hearing Chris say that, actually, because they're concerned for their own seats and they're particularly concerned about their councils. They are saying they're increasingly seeing protest votes for whoever tactically is more likely to beat the Conservatives. Sometimes that's the Lib Dems, rarely is it Labour. At a local level, it's often the Greens. And they say the Greens are doing extremely well at a council level in the sort of home counties, traditional Tory shires type areas, by opposing development, opposing planning permission for new houses, new buildings. And that is going down incredibly well with a lot of voters. And so, yeah, and so they, 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 they somehow managing to hive off uh, support from both uh, Labour and the Tories. Is there a, is a, um, uh, Chris, is there a big generational thing? Are, are young people more likely to support the Greens or is it people more likely to be in cities than the countryside? Is there, What's the sort of demographics of where they particularly pick up support? Yeah, the Green Party support is um, disproportionately from younger people, younger people, of course, who, when you ask them what is the top issues facing the country, are also a lot more likely to say the environment and a lot more likely to have voted Remain and all of those things as well. Um, but also what you do notice with support for the Greens is that it's predominantly amongst graduates, those who have got a university degree, um, and they've actually got the biggest div educational divide on support of any of the parties right now. Uh, and do the uh, we're looking ahead to Charlotte um, in uh, when is it October November when Britain's supposed to be holding the, the COP twenty six climate change talks. Boris Johnson Boris Johnson not being shy about talking about climate change and doing the right thing by the environment and that sort of thing. Um, is that having any purchase or has he still got a problem with? On the one hand, you know he wants to be seen to be doing something, but quite a lot of his uh, backbench MPs are, are not massive fans. 
A few of his backbench MPs are slightly frustrated by the focus on this, but this does seem to be having a really positive impact for Boris Johnson. A couple of years ago, both the Conservatives and Labour essentially realised from their internal numbers that neither of them were occupying this green issue. And they both, therefore, found a space that they could move into and pick up votes. And the Conservatives have been very successful in doing that. They've really, really focused on the green agenda, which has also, as well, really allowed them to soften their image somewhat. The frustration that I've heard from a couple of Conservative MPs is they sort of feel like this is what happened with UKIP, where the Conservative Party went towards Brexit in order to appease UKIP voters. And then people thought, well, if we're sort of having the Conservatives who are UKIP-like, why don't we just vote UKIP and get the full thing? And they worry that the same might happen with the Greens, that people will just say, well, yes, it's all very well and good, the Conservatives talking about the environment all the time, but now I'm thinking about the environment, so I think I'm going to vote Green. (laughs) Yeah, if if, if the government, if all Boris Johnson does is raises the the level of public concern about the issue, then it might just provide the gateway drug to to get them to vote Green altogether. Um, Chris, if you were advising the Green Party, if they came to you and said, where can we, you know, if we've doubled our support from, you know, 3 4% to uh, 7 8%, uh, putting them on a par with the, the Lib Dems too, wh- where, what would you advise they do next to sort of put rocket boosters under it? Oh, so that's an incredibly difficult question to answer. The, 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 the problem that the Greens are always going to have is um, that they just get shut out of the debate. Ultimately, as we head towards a general election campaign, all of the mechanisms of first past the post and everything else kick in. And it's very, very difficult for the Greens to get a look in, to get invited to the TV debate, everything else. So I suppose the best thing they can do is just try and get themselves some attention on the key issues that they know people will care about. So, you know, get shouty, do things that they know will get them into the press, pick up on some key issues that they know their key voters all care about and make as much noise about them as they possibly can. I think it is for them. It is a case of being a bit more controversial and making a bit more noise. Making a bit more noise. That's always the issue for the smaller parties, isn't it? Well, we'll find out. Well, that's your advice. We'll find out if John Bartley, uh, the, uh, one of the co-leaders of the Green Party, is going to take it. Lovely to speak to you. That's Chris Curtis, uh, pollster from Opinion. And we also heard from Charlotte Ivis, Times Radio's political uh, correspondent. Yeah, up next, we'll speak to John uh, Bartley uh, and find out um, what, what are his plans to try and uh, to, uh, build this momentum behind the Green Party. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Green onions, green onions, do you see? It's also a good excuse to play a particularly uh, good song. Yeah, we're talking about the Green Party uh, and uh, their green shoots of success in the local elections earlier this month and what that might mean for British politics. Uh, so we've we picked over the polling and the politics and now let's speak to their co-leader, Jonathan Bartley, who joins me now. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. It's quite hard to find songs uh, with green in the title, it turns out, this morning. <laughs> it was that or uh, 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 Ho Ho Jolly Green uh, Green Giant, uh, which I wasn't quite... It's Kermit the Frog. It's not easy being green. Oh, that's exactly what we should have played. That's exactly what we... Right, get... Get the, can we get the entire team on that? We'll try and uh, we'll try and sort that out. So, uh, Jonathan, I suppose the big question here: Are we getting uh, ridiculously overexcited about the fact you've gone from four percent to eight percent? Hopefully, you're not getting overexcited. We need more excitement about what's happening. I think something very significant is happening. Uh, hearing just you know what you were discussing just now, two very interesting observations. One, of course, UKIP had a phenomenal increase in the polls, but never really broke through at Westminster at all. I don't think they ever actually won 
a Westminster seat, you know, without a defection. Um, and, you know, we aren't a flash in the pan. We've been building and building and building. And we know from the Liberal Democrat success that actually you can shoot up in the opinion polls, but if you're not targeting to win at constituency level under first past the post, you aren't going to get those Westminster seats. So I think it can be a distraction you know, equating four to eight uh, percent in the polls with a massive uh, increase in Westminster seats. You can actually get that increase in Westminster seats by targeting strategically at the constituency level, as we've seen in the local council elections. And that's why we've seen the phenomenal increase uh, in the, the, the vote uh, in local councils. Yeah, talk us, um, through, talk us through some of those, because I did, I, I touched on, particularly you're now the joint largest party in Bristol. Bristol is sort of one of the areas um, uh, that I know you've made uh, a lot of gains. Where else are the Greens a force to be reckoned with? We did really well in, in Sheffield, uh, for example. Um, what was fascinating about it was we were breaking through in, in areas right around the country, from Cornwall to Essex and Kent, right up to uh, the Wirral, um, South uh, Tyneside. You know, it's just everywhere. There's no area in the UK where, where Greens can't go. You know, the second point, I think, just on your point about the Conservatives and the way that they've been playing it, is that we've learned from places like Brighton, where we, we won the Council of Labour, and the Labour said, you know, we suddenly realised you can't out-green the Greens, <laughs> and you can't out-green the Greens. And every time we shift as a country in opinion polls, in the issues tracker, in the YouGov's issues tracker, showing the climate rising up the, up the agenda, it's going to bring more support for the Green Party. There is no party that can outgreen the Greens. Um, and so I think it's absolutely right the Conservatives should be scared uh, of what, what's happening at the local level. And indeed, the other parties should be scared too. Uh, and what about, but what about the, you can't outgreen the Greens, but you can beat the Greens. You know, in, in a general election campaign, it's likely to be the leader of the Tories or the leader of the Labour Party that um, uh, ends up as Prime Minister. So is there a risk... And I don't know, maybe you think Labour are more green or the Tories are more green, but if, is there a risk that the, uh, the Green Party eats into, say, Labour's vote and you end, actually end up with a, uh, with a Tory government, which is less green than the one you might like? Well, we've, got, we've got two things happening here. One, in the local elections, we actually took pretty much as many seats off Conservatives as we did off Labour. So, yeah, it's absolutely true that our core vote is typically young, progressive, outward-looking, there's no doubt about it. That's always been the case. But we are able to win seats from the Conservatives where Labour clearly can't. And indeed, where the Lib Dems clearly can't. So we've got something unique to offer. The other point is, of course, Labour. Uh, you know, are we ever going to see another Labour government? I don't know if we are. Uh, things are changing right around the world. This isn't just a phenomenon in the UK. Those kind of left of centre parties are really, really struggling. Um, you know, those kind of Labour parties elsewhere and so we have to ask serious questions about whether we're seeing a major realignment in British politics uh, happening not just off the back of Brexit but something that's happening globally. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of this because it, it feels like people f feel you know, you know well inclined lots of people feel well inclined to you Green Party they like the planet we like the planet we something should be done about the environment they seem you know uh, nice but what does that mean in practice because once you start as Boris Johnson's discovering once you start getting down to the nitty-gritty of you're going to have to get rid of your gas boiler you're going to have to move to an electric car uh, you're probably going to have to pay more you know going green is going to cost money uh, suddenly the, the the hard economic uh, arguments become more difficult don't they so what's the what's the green party position on that is it just you do have to just front it up and say uh, going green is going to cost you more money 
Well, we would say that if that were the case. Um, but first of all, we know that our cost of plans for Green New Deal uh, will pay for themselves. Secondly, we know from the Stern review years ago that the more we can spend now, the more we will save in the long run because the consequences of climate change are going to be eye-wateringly expensive, running into trillions of pounds. So it's going to save us money in the long run if we spend now. But the third point is that COVID has blown, I think, those old uh, you know, austerity arguments out of the water completely. And something, of course, we've been saying for, for 10 years, that austerity was a lie and unnecessary. You know, our Green New Deal, it was you know, eye-watering at the last general election. 100 billion a year, we said, we needed to invest in the face of an emergency. Well, we've seen this government in the space of a year spend something between 300 and 400 billion, you know, three or four times that amount on a COVID emergency. We know the climate emergency is that much bigger. Um, when you are spending now in the face of an emergency, it's an investment. But we also know a Green New Deal will create hundreds of thousands, millions, in fact, of new jobs. And we've got to transition the economy. The question is not if, but when. And we know the sooner we can do it, the better it is for people. We can create those good jobs now. Why would you not want to do it and make that investment now? Certainly if you can pay for it in, a, in an era of very low interest rates. We've heard before about how green schemes are going to pay for themselves. The coalition tried it. Uh, the Conservative Party have, uh, have tried it too. And it quite often doesn't work out. Why Why do some of those the previous schemes, whether it was... Uh, you know, loft insulation or solar panels and all that. The, the big ideas and, you know, individual ministers very committed to the cause. And it quite often doesn't quite pan out quite right. Uh, is that well, because it does involve a lot of money up front and there's a bit of salami slicing and it falls down? Is it because the public aren't gripped by it and don't, you see that, that sort of public buy-in? Why is it that sometimes these previous big eye-catching ideas never quite seem to land? Well, let's take one of those examples that you quoted, of course, solar. And that was fascinating. The government deliberately uh, put in subsidy into solar because we knew that new technology needed that investment. Uh, the feed-in tariffs were phenomenally successful. We saw an explosion of solar in the UK around 2008 to 2010. Uh, local businesses you know, being created right up and down the country. People saying, why would I not want to do this? It's going to provide clean energy. It's going to make me money on my home. It's going to cut my bills. Of course I'm going to do this, could provide me money back to the feeding tariff. I did it myself. I actually bought the panels. I climbed up on my roof. I drilled the panels in myself. That now still owns me a thousand pounds a year uh, and saves me you know, probably the same amount on my uh, solar bill. Why, why did that go wrong? It's because the Conservative government came along and said, hang on, this is, this is too successful. And they slashed the feeding tariffs, they slashed the subsidy and they pulled the rug from under the solar industry that was creating thousands and thousands of jobs uh, and doing good right up and down the country. And they just destroyed it. You know, <laughs> the reason has not been that the failure uh, to invest, the reason has been taking the investment away from schemes that have been very, very successful. We know that in the 1970s, what in this country, I think ballpark figure, we put in 10 million gas central heating systems into homes up and down the country. We know that we need to do something on that scale, probably bigger, uh, over the next decade uh, in terms of retrofitting homes, putting in clean renewable energy. We could have a, an absolutely phenomenal jobs revolution. We could be saving homeowners thousands of pounds a year. Uh, we could be creating thousands of jobs um, if the government were willing to, to do it. But the government just seems intent on doing nothing of the kind. Uh, and what about the Labour Party? Is the Labour Party green enough for you? Um, I think it's going backwards. 
to be honest. Uh, to, to huge credit, I thought that the last Labour manifesto was very, very good. Um, the the uh, amount of investment was about half what we were suggesting, so we would have liked it to have been bolder on the Green New Deal. They talked more about a green industrial revolution, which is something narrower than the Green New Deal, which we were talking about across every sector of the economy, transport, agriculture, everything. Um, but it's gone, they're, they're muted. There's, you know, there's a, a, a silence uh, around climate from the Labour Party now, which is deeply, deeply troubling. And it's part of, I think, this shift that we're seeing to the centre ground. Labour just hoping that if the Conservatives implode, people will naturally come to them. And the less they say about anything, uh, the better. And I think that's why there's this lack of vision uh, from Labour at the moment. But I, I don't want to say that, you know, well, our votes are coming from Labour. Clearly, our votes are coming yeah. from all of but it sounds like, from your point of view, you preferred Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party than Keir Starmer. Um, personally speaking, yes, <laughs> I did. Uh, I, it, you know, it wasn't really a personality thing for me. It was about the policies. Um, we've been talking about uh, things like a universal basic income, like a four-day week, uh, for years and years and years. And suddenly these ideas hit the mainstream because... Jeremy Corbyn adopted them and put them into the Labour Party manifesto. And you know, there was a public debate around these issues as a result. Um, now these things are still there in the mainstream, but Labour, bizarrely, seems to be backing away from them. I don't think the problem really was, uh, at the last election, the, the Labour manifesto. When you poll on the policies and the policy package, uh, it comes up very, very high in, in people's priorities and what people want. Um, that wasn't the issue with Labour. Uh, just one final uh, thing I wanted to ask you about is the Extinction Rebellion. Uh, clearly, uh, the, the aim is to raise the cause of climate change and uh, calling for action to be taken. Do you think some of their tactics, whether it's blockading uh, printing presses or smashing windows in the city of London or gluing themselves to tube trains, do you think sometimes that's counterproductive and actually damages your cause? I don't know if it damages the cause. I think people see Extinction Rebellion as Extinction Rebellion. Um, we, it's true that we do see ourselves very much as a, as a political expression of a much, much wider movement. And it doesn't just, of course, encapsulate climate, but all sorts of organisations and those that care about migration. And we're, we're unapologetic about our welcoming of refugees and, and asylum seekers, for example. We're unapologetic about our standing up. You know, I want the Green Party to be the party of people on benefits. <laughs> Labour said they don't want to be. Well, I want us to be the party of those who are dispossessed, those who are struggling, those who need support and help and I'm you know, very proud of it. So we see us uh, as part of a much, much wider movement. Coming back to your point about Extinction Rebellion, no, we don't agree always with the tactics uh, and we will say when we disagree and we'll say when we do agree. But I do think people do make a distinction, of course, between what we are, political party, uh, and Extinction Rebellion who are a protest group. So going right back to what we were talking about at the beginning, you made good gains in the local council elections, a couple of years off from a general election. How many MPs are you going to have ne after the next election? I wouldn't be a very good politician if I started raising expectations. More than we've got now, definitely. Uh, uh, when we look at places like Bristol West, uh, you know, we won the vote in council elections in Sheffield. We're right up there. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking at places like that, I think we're in a process right now. Uh, internally, we have been for, for a year. We've gone out to our local parties. We're a very democratic um, political party. I think the most democratic. And we've said, you know, come to us, put in your bids, but why you should be target seats. We've just been going through that process uh, and now we're going to be investing and in choosing those target seats and investing heavily uh, on the ground and build organisations, network uh, of activists being supported very, very strongly. Um, because we know that under the first pass of post, we've got to target to win. And so resources will be going into uh, quite a few areas around the country where we know we can.
And how, how many of those would there be? Because like you said, you can't, you're not going to pitch for 650. So you'll be talking sort of <laughs> 5, 10, 30, 50? Look, I think it would be a mistake to, to kind of put numbers on it right now. I'll tell you why. You know, over the last five years, we've seen phenomenal changes, not just in this country, but around the world, where things have changed hugely rapidly, uh, where votes have gone the way that no one really expected or saw things coming. You, know, you can see the Corbyn surge, you know, half a million people joining the Labour Party. You know, we could suddenly get a huge surge in membership. We're seeing very significant growth in, in Green Party membership at the moment and activists. And if we get a major, major surge, it could surpass you know, many of my expectations. So I'm not going to set a bar right now. I think <laughs> it's worth asking the question. Yeah, worth asking the question. Of course it is. <laughs> now, um, never, mind, never mind politicians not answering questions. At least here on Times Radio, we deliver on promises. It's not that easy being green. <laughs> it's your suggestion. I think if you make this your election anthem, you, you know, you'll sweep the ball, Jonathan. It's a vote winner. It's a vote winner. <laughs> That's what you need. You do a proper public endorsement from Kermit the Fog. Uh, Jonathan Bartley, co-leader of the uh, Green Party in England. Uh, thanks very much for uh, joining us. And we should point out, uh, because obviously the Green Party are... Um, we'll talk about this... Uh, we should point out the Green Party. We'll talk about this in the midday update. I think um, the Green Party doing a deal with the SNP in Scotland, but they are sister parties. So I remember on the on the night of the, or over the weekend of the election results coming in, Sean Berry is the co-leader with Jonathan Bartley in England, uh, pointing out the very very different sister parties sister parties in Scotland. Uh, anyway, that was interesting. It was interesting. Nice to take a step back from you know who and talking about you know what um, and just uh, yeah uh, just uh, to root around of what's going on uh, in the the battle to be Britain's third or at least England's uh, third political party. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday 10 till 1 on Times Radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.